the wrong things are kept secret and it destroys people. My name is Matthew Kroll. And droll thing life is that mysterious arrangement of merciless logic for a futile purpose. The most you can hope from it is some knowledge of yourself that comes too late. A crop of unextinguishable regrets. My name is Shahir Dowd. And this is the only podcast about movies, specifically the film All of the Beauty and the Bloodshed, which I think Shahir just got a lot of it across in his quote. I quoted the entire movie. I apologize for that in advance. Uh, also, this is a listen to Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. And I kind of wanted to try it because Orson Welles famously wanted to do Heart of Darkness as his first movie. Sure. So he read it, and I like Orson Welles' voice, and of course I sound exactly like Orson Welles. Maybe I sound more <laughs> like Pinky in the Brain from Pinky in the Brain. Uh, Matt, uh, how you doing, buddy? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. Uh, it's a short week. It's PAX week. If you're hearing this now, I'm probably actively on a plane back from Boston, literally, as you're listening to this. Okay, uh, so, so give me some predictions. Now. Let's do some predictions then. How did PAX go? Oh, wow. For those who are listening to this, having now transported back in the past mm-hmm, to the future mm-hmm, mm-hmm. what happened at PAX this week that was so I, amazing okay I think the panel went really well we're doing a design club live where we're going to be uh, looking at the first hour of Pokemon Scarlet going in cold so okay. we have a bunch of designers on a panel to to, to react uh, to that I think that's going to go great I also think I'm going to accidentally bump into um a major record label executive and I'm going to get a five album deal. So one Whoa. of those two things at least should come true. To record audio books? What is it We know, whatever, man. Yeah. Uh, I, gonna, <laughs> I gotta, you, I gotta pay uh, them bills. And also, like, uh, did you hear Logic's new song which had Seth MacFarlane in it? No. You know, like, I mean, there's this thing about Seth MacFarlane which is that he likes old Radio Time classics. Sure, sure. And he, you know, like, he, he's put out a number of albums and now he's on a hip-hop album. <laughs> that's is that yeah I think I can uh, I can see that in your future. Yeah. It was actually interesting and fu- and maybe you'll do a record with future. Maybe zing. Um, uh, there was an interesting thing with a, a logic. Um, did an Instagram live of Seth MacFarlane recording, and so you got to see Seth MacFarlane's recording studio, his in-home recording studio, which is obviously where he does all of his Family Guy recordings right. and everything as well. And it was obviously much more lush than the closet that I am in, and the uh, and the homemade studio that you're in. It was really interesting though, because it was like he actually recorded in a really, really big, wide open room. Um, that had like doors and windows and like lots of acoustic noise in and around it. Uh, but I think his mics are probably better than ours. And I'm sure I don't know. I got a pretty good. I got the ethos, baby. I got a Earthworks <laughs> mic. This thing is a is a vocal beast. I'm gonna go out on a limb here. I'm gonna say Seth MacFarlane of Family Guy has a better recording setup than either of us. The Beatles have recorded on a microphone such as this that I am talking. I'm I'm straight up. I like I. I, I do not think any of my tech, in fact, before this even started, sorry we're going off on a tangent, I was right. talking about how my board is a piece of shit and <laughs> changes vocal levels on me. The people uh, at Earthworks who I've actually visited their manufacturing plant in uh, Wilton, New Hampshire, which is a town away uh, from, uh, kind of, well, a few towns over from where I used to live. And uh, they, uh, it's funny, their history, they're one of the only like high-end mic manufacturers in the United States. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have a custom extra credits one from them, and their ethos thing is absolutely batshit insane. The, the stuff I have my mic hooked up to and the room I am speaking to through it in is garbage. The microphone yeah. is pristine, and many famous people have used it. Okay. So, but you, so, you're, so you're saying that you... 
You would go toe-to-toe with Seth MacFarlane's recording setup. I'm saying this microphone could go toe-to-toe with whatever microphone Seth MacFarlane is using. Every other piece of technology he has could whoop my ass. I just think that specifically the mic, it's very important I win this very microphone. Yeah, I was going to say, you you really take... um, Shout out to Earthworks. They're awesome. They're awesome folks. uh, And I really (laughs) liked taking a tour of their uh, facility. Well, this is uh, also the post-Oscar uh, scream uh, buzz, and so there's a little bit of news I wanted to catch up on. Uh, obviously, uh, I think something near and dear to our hearts is uh, uh, Lance, H- uh, Lance Riddick had passed away at the age yeah. of 60. Yeah. Um, famously in The Wire, uh, will be seen in um, in the upcoming John Wick films and has mm-hmm, been mm-hmm. in the previous two. Um, I believe was in Fringe as well, and maybe more importantly for your uh, fans and communities, also was a voice on Destiny and a game player himself. Yeah, Zavala. Uh, Commander Zavala, uh, one of the big three uh, yeah. in that. And it's actually, it's, we talked about it today on Extra Breakfast on Twitch, but uh, the, the communities, and this happens a lot, and I mm-hmm. really like that it does, comes together a lot. And uh, there have been like nonstop vigils at his character. I heard his, he was playing the night before he passed away, and so his character is still online. Oh, wow. No, well, so he's, I don't know about his specific guardian, but he plays an NPC. Right. Yeah. So, but he he actually plays yes, as well, yes. and so and 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 from what I read, he was playing the night before he passed away. Oh, I didn't and hear that. And his character was still logged in, um, and so they have done vigils around uh, his character um, as well. Yeah. Uh, I I you know it, I don't know if it's the appropriate thing to say, but it is kind of a compliment. Uh, but I, I recall a moment in The Wire when Shivali, my wife and I were watching it and we both suddenly turned into Chris Rock uh, into into Ice Cube and Chris Tucker from Friday <laughs> when when Lance Riddick took his shirt off and walked down the hallway in one scene and we both were like damn yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is like this that dude like you just you don't see it coming. <laughs> Let me just put it that way. The interesting thing, and uh, you know, this isn't uh, all about celebrity deaths. This episode, but like, there's something really um, sort of beautiful about Lance Riddick's career in that he touched a lot of different mediums and a lot of different people in a lot of different ways. Like, normally when there's a, a death in 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 the the zeitgeist that I follow mm-hmm. uh, on my feed or my timeline for a day or two, it's in the music section or it's in the gaming section or like there's something along those lines. This has been like a week. And it's been across so many different mediums that I enjoy. And you're kind of reminded like, oh, fuck, like this is a yeah. dude that made so, so many different things that were part of my like almost like weekly media diet. Yeah. Um, so it was an incredible loss. And we're very sad. Uh, you know, hearts go out to his family and friends. I know that there's there. They must be dealing with a lot. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then the other thing I wanted to point out was that A.O. Scott has finally hung up his spurs at the New York Times. He has been a critic of review for mm. two decades. Uh, him and Manola Dagas uh, have been reviewing there for a long time. And he wrote this sort of beautiful um, uh, exit interview for himself this week, uh, which I just wanted to read a couple of lines from because I thought they were great. Um, you know, he basically asked himself questions uh, as, as he would do <laughs> on an exit interview. And the first question was always, did you always love movies? And his answer was, yes and no. I've often been infatuated by movies, but I've also frequently been frustrated, confused, and enraged by them. Ambivalence isn't neutrality. It's the simultaneity of strong, opposed emotions, and I think it defines my experience as a critic. Sometimes I've hated movies. 
I've never been indifferent. Movies have been part of my dream life and my worldly education since my first traumatic encounter with the flying monkeys in The Wizard of Oz. Oh, man. I am still in awe of their power, the movies, not the monkeys, to conjure up intense emotions, to invent new worlds, and to disclose unsuspected truths about the one we inhabit. The thing I love most about the movies is their ability to obliterate, reason, and abolish taste. You know the jump scare is coming, but you jump anyway. You suspect you should be offended by a joke, but you laugh helplessly in spite of yourself. Why are you crying? You don't really know, but you can't argue with their tears. And this is the part I I thought was really interesting. I'm going to uh, abbreviate some of this here. It's inevitable that movies sometimes abuse their powers and mistreat the people who love them most. Um, And he goes on to say... But I'll always love being into, uh, at the movies. The tense anticipation of the darkening theater, the rapt attention and grasping surprise as the story unfolds, and the tingly silence that follows the final shot, right before the cheers and the arguments start. I wouldn't miss any of the movies I've seen, even the bad ones. Um, he also goes on to talk about the 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 rise of fandoms in this um, uh, in this article, and I thought this was an interesting one because he uh, recently was swarmed by a lot of people. He says, "But I'm not a fan of modern fandom, and this isn't." only because I've been swarmed on Twitter by angry devotees of Marvel and DC and more recently Top Gun Maverick and everything everywhere at once. It's more that the behavior of these social media hordes represents an anti-democratic, anti-intellectual mindset that is harmful to the cause of art and antithetical to the spirit of movies. Fan culture is rooted in conformity, obedience, group identity, and mob behavior, and its rise mirrors and models the spread of intolerant, authoritarian, aggressive tendencies in our politics and our communal life. I thought that was an interesting thing to go out on, given that the... um, Given, like, again, if we think about, I guess if we took an example like the DCEU and the Snyderverse uh, situation and even what's been happening recently with uh, James Gunn's uh, takeover of the DCEU. Um, and, uh, you know, I think there's an interesting thing that's also happening right now, which is that we're seeing a waning effect in the superhero genre. You know, what are you talking about? Shazam's doing great. <laughs> Um, I think this is an interesting point for this film critic to go out on. Um, I think he's got a lot of good points. Uh, I also think he's forgetting how, um, again, I I, I would say that I I agree with 70% of that take, or actually all of it, but yes, anding him a bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, There is an element of fandom that is less talked about because it doesn't get clicks and it doesn't uh, really move the needle in any monetary way. Mm -hmm. And that is that it does like it's the good part of community. It's the good part of feeling like you do belong. Should that be the place where all discourse about film or whatever goes to for like what's good and bad or what's art or is not or whatever? Of course not. And it has gotten out of hand much like all online life has, but there are benefits to finding your your community and the things that you love. It's right. just the it's the outward vitriol of the entirety that we live our lives online now that poisons that like honestly wholesome meaningful connectivity that art can bring. Right. And uh, so it's interesting because I, I that's a very cool sort of I, I think that's a baller way for a film critic to go out. Yeah. Uh, I just I wanted to also highlight that fandoms I think it's a dirty word at this point, but there there are. Uh, there are good elements to it as well. It just might not be moving the needle in a positive way for, for uh, film criticism or art criticism because uh, the internet. <laughs> I think I think the point that I, I res- resonated with there wasn't necessarily that fandoms are bad, but that there is um, 
perhaps uh, uh, a lean towards an anti-intellectualism within fandoms when they're unified around a single property as opposed to being critical of that property, which is what film criticism should offer. You know, like in terms of like both praising and and critiquing. uh, It's super fashy. Yeah, yeah. Super fashy? Yeah, fascist. Yeah. Oh, because, fascist. B- yeah. because, like, if you look at, like, if you... And look, I've been guilty of uh, uh, Marvel sort of... I, actually, you know what is interesting? I keep always, like, making fun. Like, ha, 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 I'm a Marvel shill. Ha, ha, ha. Yeah. But now I'm, like, not. Yeah. And so that leads me to honestly believe that I never was. I just really enjoyed the work they were doing. Well, and you're, now, you're, and yeah. now I don't. <laughs> Yeah, and I think, and I think, uh, the even when you in even when you're enjoying the work, I think you can still crit- critique oh, what you like so. and don't like. I think there um, maybe what Ao Scott is responding to as well is this idea that um, the sense of entitlement fandom has created to the works of art. Because I, you know, like yep. I also think that movies shouldn't give you what you want, but they should give you what the creator thinks that you might need or what or the story that they want to tell. Um, and, which could and, coincide, which but could, of don't course could coincide. To. But we have this sort of like rising wave, uh, particularly around, as you mentioned, around internet fandoms, uh, which has suggested that uh, we, we should be given what we want, like the Justice League cut, um, which is like. <laughs> but even uh, so, that's such a small fact. Like it's so funny. Like the the friggin' yeah. DCEU bros, and like they're just like half bots, and like who the hell knows who's real anyway? And now AI is going to start up, and everyone's voices is going to be synthesized anyway, so it doesn't fucking matter. Uh, but anyway, uh, farewell to A.O. Scott, who is, I believe, going to be taking up the literary criticism um, for the New York Times, but um, is hanging up the spurs as the uh, as one of the film critics. So when do we start? When do we start? When I, we can write better than a fifth grade level. Oh, uh, oh, I th- oh, we don't have the job? I thought we had <laughs> no, the job. They, they didn't call, it's funny, was. though, in, in the article, they talk about how A.O. Scott, well, A.O. Scott talks about how he became the New York Times film critic, and it was literally someone read something he had written that wasn't even related to movies and called him up and said, hey, do you want to write a, do you want to write movie reviews for the New York Times? And I was like, of course, that's how we're going to get started, right? At the New York Times. Shahir, honestly, isn't that how every major career move for us has kind of happened in a weird, dumb way? Of course. Everyone's just, yeah, I've just like randomly fallen into place. Uh, in almost every facet of my life, it's it's odd <laughs> how that just happens, and it's nice to hear that someone as successful as, as him has also had the same sort of thing happen. All right, um, one final thing before we move on to uh, all the beauty in the bloodshed uh, is an email that we actually got a couple of weeks ago, and it was pertaining to our Oscars episode. Unfortunately, yes. we got it on the day of our Oscars record, so I wasn't able. Well, actually, it was probably the day before, uh, and I wasn't able to actually like consolidate this in because it was a little bit of a long email. But I'm going to try and go through it a little bit quickly now. So again, thank you to Alex for writing us in at onlymoviepodcast at gmail.com. And Alex writes, "Hi, Matt and Jahir. I've been listening for a little while now. I decided this past summer that I wanted to start listening to a movie podcast." And I knew from hearing Matt talk about it on EC streams hey. that this was the only option. <laughs> yeah. It's so fun hearing you guys discuss movies after I watch them. Since it's Oscars Day, I'm sending along my predictions. However, what I want, however, what I want to win in the category doesn't always align with what I think will win. So I've listed both a prediction and a vote for each category. I've also marked the five films that I did not get to see yet. So, um, so real quick, a love this. Yeah. The, the, this email is pristine. And like it's beautifully formatted, formatted, and I love. I'm a huge fan of the prediction and the personal vote. Yeah, because like, we, we sort yeah. of do that, right? Like yeah. we kind of uh, um, do a prediction and a personal vote. I mean, sometimes they misalign. Sometimes, like I voted with my um, 
with my brain and lost, and I've voted with my heart and won sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, so we're just going to go through these really quickly. Writing for original screenplay, Alex wanted the Banshees of Inisherin to win, thought Tar would win, Everything Everywhere All at Once won. Mm-hmm. For best uh, directing in a feature film, Alex thought Everything Everywhere All at Once would win, but wanted Triangle of Sadness to win. Of course, we know that Everything Everywhere All at Once did actually win that award. Mm-hmm. Actress in a supporting role, uh, Alex wanted Stephanie Hsu to win, uh, but thought that Carrie Condon would win. And we know that Jamie Lee Curtis won this one. Well, that was Act- all the same for me, actually, yeah. <laughs> uh, actress in a leading leading role, predicted Kate Blanchett, wanted Kate Blanchett, and this went to Michelle Yeoh. Actor in a supporting role, uh, predicted Judd Hirsch, wanted Barry Keegan, uh, and this went to Ki-Hu Kwan. Actor in a leading role, predicted Bill Nye for living, voted for Brendan Fraser for The Whale, and was correct on Brendan Fraser for The Whale. Finally, for best picture, the last one out here, um, predicted everything where everywhere all at once, wanted woman talking, that's my guy. And this, of course, went to everything everywhere all at once. So again, thank you, Alex, for those predictions. Uh, again, really fantastic email, really well laid out. Uh, apologies we couldn't get this uh, to this on the date. But if you still have Oscar predictions and hopes, write us in. Um, and we'll try to cover them over uh, over the next year. What, is that right, man? We'll take another year over these things? No. <laughs> it's Come over. On. It's done. <laughs> if you didn't get it in before the wire like Alex did, we're not doing it until next year. We have too many other th- cinematic things to talk about. Too many cinematic things, including this year's uh, nominee for Best Documentary Feature, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed by Laura Poitras. Um, in fact, Alex uh, predicted that this would win the um, uh, the <laughs> documentary award, uh, but um, thought that what would... Ha- uh, personally wanted Navalny to win. And in fact, they were correct. Navalny did win. And I happened to see Navalny and All the Beauty and the Bloodshed this weekend, which were both featured on HBO Max. Uh, someone did shout out on Twitter that they were really appreciative of the fact that HBO Max's Last of Us, uh, the vacuum that the, you know, the Last of Us ending was filled by both Navalny and All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. So they were really pushing their documentary good features scheduling. Uh, for that. Matt, could you tell us what All the Beauty and the Bloodshed is about? Well, the IMD boot uh, describes it as following the life of artist Nan Golding and the downfall of the Sackler family, the pharmaceutical dynasty who is greatly responsible for the opioid epidemic's unfathomable death toll. Did you catch Dope Sick this year? Or? I didn't. No, yeah. I wanted to. On Hulu, the Michael Keaton vehicle, which uh, outlined the opioid crisis. Um, uh, obviously, the opioid crisis is uniquely po- uniquely poised in America um, because of the scale of it. We, what, it's like in the vicinity of half a million deaths. Is that yeah, right? Yeah. Um, um, and, you know, uh, I have uh, a family member that works in the pharmaceutical industry. When discussing Purdue, uh, the discussions were not favorable, um, either both in a historical sense or in a, in a contemporary sense either, uh, even though Pharma, uh, Purdue Pharma has been around for over 150 years at this point. Uh, the people that I speak to, uh, spoke to who work in the pharmaceutical industry had not a lot of nice things to say about this particular uh, pharmaceutical company, as, mm. as many people uh, do. But I was curious. Had you? Did you know much about Nan Golding or any or this story at all before this? Ever so slightly. Um, I, without getting too much into it, because again, I don't. I don't want to be a Debbie Downer. Uh, I've had a, a death in the family uh, uh, that is um, 
around this topic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've kept up a little bit with uh, Purdue and, you know, Sackler. And then, of course, you can't get around that without Nan Golding and some of the activision, uh, a- activism that has been going around for a bit. So I've caught stories and whiffs of it, uh, mm-hmm. but never in uh, such a uh, concise two-hour-ish timeline uh, I was I was educated quite well when I watched this documentary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I am a uh, photography buff, um, so I uh, I love reading stories about contemporary photographers. I follow a lot of contemporary photographers around Nan Golding time. Uh, Robert Maplethorpe uh, is kind of the one uh, contemporary photographers that most people will know. But if if you're interested in that world around the sort of punk new wave of New York in the 1970s, uh, Nan Golding's name come up. In fact, actually, this is a sort of funny side anecdote. Um, I was once asked to pitch on a music video for Jeff Buckley's estate. Um, and it was for, and it was the strangest pitch ever, uh, which was that, uh, the production company had seen my work and they were like, you're really good with robots, right? Uh, do you want to do pitch a video for Jeff Buckley's uh, uh, 20th anniversary of one of his tracks uh, with robots? And I was like, <laughs> Jeff Buckley, widely known for his love of robots. <laughs> robots. And I was like, uh, sure. I, I, yeah, why not? <laughs> and, I, and I went into pitch and, and, and it was, and it was like, it was, it was, I obviously didn't get the project, but it was like a strange, you know, like there was this strange thing, which is that they had asked me to pitch based on the fact that I like had done music videos with robots, sure. but it had nothing to do with robots. So what I actually pitched was something to do around Nan Golden's work. Um, and I had, you know, used a lot of references from her work, particularly around the ballad of sexual de- uh, dependency as uh, a reference point for the aesthetic of the music video I wanted to create. So I was really doing a lot of research around it. It was just just a wild, weird, huh. uh, weird turn of events at that point. So I got really interested in in her story, and I and I spent a lot of time looking at her photographs. And I think the thing that most people, or at least I, kind of felt when I was looking at her photographs was the level of intimacy that she has with her subjects. And uh, I was reading a New York Times article uh, about her uh, recently today, and it one of the things it mentioned that that I think she quoted as saying was that. Um, she rejects the idea that she is a voyeur to the party. One of the most important things about her photograph is that she is at she is the party or she is in the party. It's so, it's, it's it's her life. She's yeah, photographing it, people in her life. Yeah, exactly. And that's what makes the photograph so striking yeah. is that they're so intimate. Uh, and obviously beautiful and and um you know technically beautifully crafted. But but also just striking in terms of like sure. how close she is to people and how much and how willing people are to like let her in. And I think one of the big things is that um, the subjects always have veto right over any of her photographs that she takes, so they yes. can w- yep. automatically reject anything that she takes. Um, and there's a line in this in this film where she says, um, what, "You know, her subjects would often say to her, uh, 'I'd never thought I could be that beautiful.' And that is, of course, what Nan Golding wanted to to say is that you are beautiful." Um, so I I was very interested in her. I actually on the other, on the flip side of what you've just said uh-huh. uh, had no knowledge whatsoever of her activism in uh, the opioid crisis. To be honest, I didn't have much of a of a knowledge of her photography. <laughs> right. So there we go. We're coming at it like uh, in in the we are the yin to each other's yang. I knew she was a photographer. Right. Uh, I did not know, uh, and and uh, obviously a um, recovering addict. But um, yeah. So what did you think? Uh, this was this was. 
widely uh, there's also a conversation i kind of want to get into about the beast documentary feature play because there were two really interesting uh nominees that were in there this year but this was the film that kind of went in uh as the favorite for the best documentary feature it didn't of course win navalny won uh not that that really matters too much but but what did you think of the documentary as you watched it well first it was it was honestly it was nice to do a doc for the for the podcast again just kind mm-hmm. of a, a nice that we just i don't i'm trying to remember the last one we did it's been a while i think yeah. i think we did um the Arge, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg documentary last. Oh, wow. Was it that? <laughs> yeah, which is probably like two or three years ago, to be um, honest with you. No, so um, it's funny. When you haven't watched, I haven't watched a doc in a little bit. And so, right. like, getting back on the, on the, um, <laughs> on the mystery structure adventure again uh, right. is always sort of interesting. Like in the beginning, I didn't quite understand what was like, I was like, oh, this is the thing I read about. I'm like, I got it. And then it sort of went into her life. And like, what, it's funny. At first, when I was watching this without doing too many spoilers, it does undulate between sort of like, um, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. The, the beginning of this movie isn't even that. The beginning of the movie is her talking about uh, her, her growing up and her sister. I believe, or did it? Does it do the? Does it do the Met thing? It first? does a little bit of cross cutting. I think we open with her um, protest at the Metropolitan Museum. Yeah. Bar. So, so, so there's two stories being told that honestly tie together very well by the end in this movie. One of her activism against the Sackler family, and one of just sort of the reasons, sort of almost like her life story, where you can kind of glean her reasonings for doing a lot of different things, either in her personal life or her photography or or her activism. And it was, um, it's funny, in the beginning I was like, I was, this was a movie where as I was watching the beginning of it, I did not understand the tie. And then I was like, but I also think it was put together sort of caringly enough and lovingly enough where I'm like, I trust this movie to get me to where, get me Mr. Dum Dum face to like get me to the place where I'm like, I understand what this movie is trying to say. Right. Uh, and and it absolutely does. I really, really um, enjoyed it. It also had like, it does sort of the quintessential, whenever there's activism in a documentary, uh, there's always the worry that you're going to get... Um, like, how do I put this? Like, well, uh, black screen, white text, no victory. <laughs> All right, yeah. Um, <laughs> the, and, the misery of the, the woes of the world. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, without, again, without many spoilers, there is a little of that, but not a lot. Like, it, it, the way that the, the victories, albeit however small or large you consider them, that happen in this movie, in this documentary, um, they, they are presented in a way that feel very meaningful. And I like the arc that this movie takes about her life and about her activism. It makes it, it, this movie has a really wonderful effect of being about terrible, difficult, awful things being perpetrated by, uh, you know, you know, either late stage capitalism or, 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 you know, you could, there's a lot of different places to blame things, but the, uh, but also it has a really lovely message of like, I don't want to say grassroots movement, but like like people that are not billionaires can change the fate of billionaires, not not destroy them and not and not uh, make it so they will ever feel even a fracture of the pain that they've caused across the, the planet or across the country, but still can change their life for the slight uh, worse for them based on some repercussions that should come. And that that was. um I think a very important and uh, I found inspirational message in uh, a, a landscape, media or otherwise, that is just inundated with nightmare 
it was uh, a, it was a sad, um, depressing watch, but also incredibly hopeful uh, with just sort of the resolve that Nan and her team and and almost that she's had throughout her entire life. So I was quite moved by it, to be honestly. I, I thought it was uh, surprising it, when I first started it. I did not expect to connect with it as much as I did by the end of it. And I, but I also, you know, even by minute five or so, I was like, I trust this filmmaker. Yeah, I don't understand the connections right now. I yeah. bet I will. Uh, yeah, Laura Poitras, uh, uh, I believe she won an Academy Award for Citizen Four, which is the story mm. of Edward Snowden uh, a few years ago. And then the other documentary that she's known for, although having done many pieces, is a film called Risk about Julian Assange. Um, so she's obviously um, well-versed in taking a look at people whose... Um, Personal beliefs affect the political spec, the political outcomes of the world around mm-hmm. them, um, and Nan Golden is no is no different. Although you could argue far more successful than Edward Snowden or Julian Assange in terms of how they've affected change within the world. And what Poitras is doing that's really beautiful here is drawing a line between the personal tragedies of Nan Golden, you know, starting with the suicide of her sister when she was a young age, one that she uh, was kind of told, or, you know, knowing that it was a suicide, often remarked upon to to treat it as though it was not, mm-hmm. uh, as though it was an accident of some kind um, by her family. And then, you know, it goes much further into Golden's life herself in terms of being sent to an orphanage, um, starting a new life, and then uh, meeting up with the uh, the kind of you know the punk new new wave of the of the New York 1970s, particularly around the Lower East Side. Uh, Cookie Mueller is a sort of key figure. Um, also around John Waters and Divine, and um, I'm sure it's not Robert Maplethorpe and um, Andy Warhol are not mentioned here, but uh, I, I'm sure they probably would have been within the ether of that of that world as well. I feel like uh, Warhol was probably a little more the, on the other side of it, but still like the other end of the spectrum of this. A uh, much much higher. Um, uh, yeah, like much higher economic growth. In fact, if well, you look at the cleaner side, if you also if you look at um, just the the spectrum of New York City, um, Nan Golden was further downtown in the Lower East Side, yeah. and Warhol was sort of more midtown, closer to Chelsea. You know, around, circled around yeah. Chelsea. And hotel. by cleaner, and, I mean less rough edges. I mean yeah. like the the more uh, uh, overall socially acceptable side. But there's an interesting overlap between Maplethorpe's work and Golden's work mm. as well in terms of the kind of almost relationship to pornography um, that they yeah. have, which is that – and Golden's work actually doesn't even get into this, whereas Maplethorpe's work explicitly sort of uh, aligns itself as a sort of form of radical pornography. Uh, Golden's work is a little bit more like, well, this is actually just the world we live in. Right. You know, These are the people who – uh, are in my ether and who happen to have sex. Um, uh, and so I think her work was a little bit more uh, organic in that respect. Um, but but there's, there's an interesting thing here that, that I think that Poitras kind of like builds us towards, which is that the, the actual curation of work that Golding did later on in her life, where she basically... And this was, for me, again, just an amazing thing to think about in terms of a photographer's professional life is a lot, is not just about the photography, but it's also about the archival process mm-hmm. and and how she has kept this really strong archive of all these people from the 1970s through the 2000s um, and maintained it and and followed stories. And then we kind of see what's happened to all these people in terms of um, the AIDS epidemic, for example. Um and this kind of personal tragedy leads us to 
the opioid crisis, which is her current um, her current uh, focus. Mm-hmm. And you know, the formation of uh, after an actual opioid uh, overdose herself, where she was given uh, oxycontin for uh, wrist surgery, but it ended up becoming addicted to it. Uh, and, I think and when she overdosed, it was accidentally cut with fentanyl. I think that was fentanyl. what. Yeah. Well, and fentanyl is also a drug that was produced by a Purdue farmer uh, as well. Who would have uh, thought? There, there you go. Um, so it was really interesting that um, the personal side of of her life, which is kind of besmirched by tragedy, um, eventually leads to this kind of singular focus on ensuring that it doesn't happen for other people. And I think that's kind of like again this remarkable thing uh, about her story, which is that it it wraps up. You know what? Again, what is an awful personal set of personal circumstances um, into this thing where she has turned it into uh, a role of activism? Now, I think the thing that the the film kind of like um, skirts over, um, or or maybe doesn't quite touch in in some in in exacting details, though it is obviously evident that Nan Golding is a major figure in the art world, and her rejection of the Sacklers may have influenced. Um, the museum, you know, like major museums like the Metropolitan Museum of Art and the Tate um, to reject the Sackler funding um, and, the, and the National Portrait Gallery of London. Um, but but I'm not, I, I, I'm sort of like mixed on whether that was just going to happen anyway because the tide, like the popular sentiment around Purdue Farmer and sort of the feeling about all farmer uh, particularly around the opioid crisis, was negative anyway, and I think maybe museums were kind of feeling that pressure anyway. Um, um, none, not as publicly and as in the face as what she was doing. Like, of course, the, you have dyings at a at a at a museum, it obviously bring, draws attention to it. And, and look, and look, everything has a has a structural uh, integrity and cost, and 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 the work that Payne did there isn't the only voice in the chorus, but I think it's one of the loudest. And I think actually, again, I mean, it's. It's hard to spoil documentaries, I suppose, but like yeah. if we're just jumping a little bit toward the end, uh, when a name is removed from when the when the Sattler name is removed from from the Met, uh, she kind of says like, "Look at this. There was no legal accountability. They'll never see a day of jail. They made out like bandits monetarily, like they did like all of the bad things. But like, look what we did, like." Right. Like and I think I think it's interesting that and I know it's it's something like a name removal is only symbolic but i think in in these sort of fights their symbols are sometimes are the only things that can kind of keep you moving right. um and i honestly do think that uh it's a chicken and the egg scenario right like would would the the tide have turned anyway and then they were already coming at them or were they a fulcrum point that made that tide turn like i i personally think it's the latter um, yeah. just from sort of following this and, and not just from the, again, we, we've talked about this before. Every documentary has an angle and this right. angle is very pro <laughs> like Golden's influence yeah, in, and their in, influence in the movement and like all that stuff. And that's fine. Uh, yeah. but I do think just from an outside perspective too, it's also quite fair, um, in the, uh, the way that she shifted, even if the, even if the powers were beyond her and her team's ken, that yeah. it was almost like, uh, they were the right amount of leverage to sort of push a much larger stone up a hill. 
Um, and, and importantly, again, the person, her personal tragedies or her personal story, as told through her photographs, evidence why this was important to her. Yeah, and and even if the even if we can't, or if we don't know how much of the victory can be attributed to, directly to her, it doesn't really matter. Well, here's another reason why I think a lot of it can is the only the only reason I feel like uh, galleries or, or or museums actually listened to her is because she was she's featured in them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There were, the national uh, the national portrait gallery was going to be doing uh, a long year run uh, um, um, arrangement of her work, which she refused to, um, which she said she would remove uh, if they accepted a million dollars of Sackler money. Um, so yeah. you know maybe that's her. And then follow. And then it's it's kind of amazing the domino effect that happens right after that, which is that the Tate. The Guggenheim, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, all kind of like reject the Sackler money. It's almost like when a cor- when corporations get large enough, if one gets scared, they all get scared. Yeah, maybe it's kind of crazy. Well, also museums do have, um, I guess, ethical boards or or some con- some conversations around. Oh, ethics. a thousand percent. But yeah. you need one. You need yeah. one to push it, and then everyone's like, "Oh, should we do it? We have to keep it behind." Like that's the kind of shit that happens, which will make actually not to get too political, but it's going to make tomorrow in New York City on a Tuesday. It'll be like seven days in the past, six days, five yeah. days, whatever you're listening to this. Uh, real interesting. The story of accountability that is going to be potentially potentially happening who the fuck knows, man. I don't know. Uh, I'm I'm curious. But. Uh, it'll it'll be an interesting day. Um, not near Museum Mile, but uh, around the District Court yeah. uh, tomorrow. Um, the other side of this that the the documentary got me thinking about was I I did some sort of just Wikipedia reading of, about Arthur Mitchell Sackler or the Sackler brothers, um, and the interesting thing that I sort of garnered from the the Sacklers, or particularly Arthur Sackler, was this idea that his great passion in life, uh, outside of you know the, the the billions that he amassed as a fortune from Purdue Pharma, was his um, collection of art. He was really proud of his collection of art, and he was a collector for a very very long time. Um, and in fact, much of the work that he had done was. Um, collecting, preserving, curating, and allowing the distribution of um, of major works of art um, that have been cornerstones of museums of their time. And it's interesting when you think... So the reason I found that fascinating, because I always found that it's not something that's really touched upon in the movie, but an interesting counterpoint to the personal stories of Nan Golden as a photographer who photographs the people around her to Arthur Sackler, who's this person who really believes in the important preservation of art and then how their, how the, the merging of the personal and political come into play. In his case, it's the, the merging of the personal and the capitalism. Um, you know, he becomes this sort of renowned figure in, as a pharmaceutical marketing genius. It's because of him that um, we have direct uh, marketing to doctors um, a, as a mechanism for how prescription drugs can be uh, marketed. It, it, it's kind of a rare thing. I think New Zealand and the United States are maybe one of only two countries in the world, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong about that in New Zealand, um, that allows I cannot. Uh, <laughs> allows <laughs> I marketing directly to consumers and to doctors. If you think about it, it's like, why would you market a drug that your doctor prescribes you to the consumer? You know, like there's that strange thing. Ask your doctor about Da-da-da-da-da. Um, it's a very, very strange thing because why would you ask your doctor about such a thing, uh, about such a drug? A doctor should be telling you about the benefits of a drug if they think it applies to you. Right. Um, they also shouldn't be getting bonuses on a few. They sh- and, and this is what uh, Purdue Pharma was kind of noted for. And the reason I thought that was interesting 
is that when it came to our like many years ago, our conversation around art and artists, um, you could argue that one of Sackler's great arts was the curation and preservation of major works of art, which was essentially wiped away by his reputation in capitalism. I'm gonna uh, make a I'm gonna make a sweeping statement, okay. and this might be a little too lefty green green boy nonsense, but um, when you get to that level of wealth where mm-hmm. your passion is uh, collecting all of the art you can and then divvying it out to where you think it should go, I don't think you as a, uh, it, it is a personal opinion. I don't think that person is a worthwhile member of the art community because really? what it's because what they're doing is they're turning art into a literal commodity based around their wealth. Hmm. There's a whole thing. I mean, it's so funny. Like you know, the the fu- the, the line Indiana Jones just belongs in a museum, yeah, right? right. <laughs> uh, they always forget the last part of that line should be in its country of origin. Right. Uh, the collection of art and antiquity across the ages, uh, especially where it all sort of ends up, uh, is fraught at best. Mm-hmm. And I think when you get to a certain size, literally in anything, I think it, it, the, the the biggest mental illness in a, in a lot of different ways is literally the sort of like capitalistic greed that can be put toward any endeavor. Like hmm. there is a point when there is enough for a individual or for a group. Uh, and so you you don't think uh, art preservation? Regardless I think of who when does you it. get into the billions and billions of dollars of the art industry and the way that it moves, it is no longer about preservation. Preservation becomes a byproduct of moving money around wealth. I think there is other ways to preserve uh, art that does not rely on billionaires. And I think that they've kind of cornered that market to kind of like, well, look at the philanthropy we're doing because we have these collections. It's 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 not um, it's not entirely moral, uh, in my opinion. Again, email us in if you want to talk about art preservation and only movie. Po- Actually, don't. I don't care. That's sort of you know. And this the only reason we're talking about it is this movie is it, it's a big you know thing in that space. Um, well, I I think that's an interesting. Uh, um point to make because of the topic I actually wanted to talk about in terms of the formation of this film, Mm. uh, which was that it was produced by Participant Media. And do you know a lot about Participant Media? I don't, no. And so Participant Media is started by Jeffrey Skull, who uh, is a former internet uh, entrepreneur, uh, in fact, the first uh, one of the first founders of, uh, the first president of eBay, um, who walked away from eBay as a billionaire, I believe is worth something like four point something billion dollars, which in the spectrum of billions, if we're talking about Elon Musk, is on the lower end. But um, Let's never talk about Elon Musk. <laughs> but Jeffrey Skull used uh, his fortune essentially to start participant media to, uh, uh, to encourage uh, to encourage art uh, or filmmaking, which um, had a both a immediate uh, educational and philanthropic uh, aim to it, and one cool. of the most famous productions of their of their work is um, is the Al Gore documentary, An Inconvenient Truth, mm-hmm. uh, which oh, yeah. because of because of their funding uh, and because of their distribution became one of the highest grossing independent films of all time. Um, they've worked extensively both in feature documentaries. So, example, uh, I saw in the work of uh, Laura Poitras in Citizen Four uh, with George Clooney in terms of films like um, uh, Good Night and Good Luck and... Um, 
the other one, Syriana as well. Mm-hmm. So the, they've really, and, and started a media center as well to uh, discuss the way in which cinema can help uh, affect change. Hmm. And and that has been Jeff Skoll, uh, who is the person who's essentially bankrolling this entire film uh, and, and part of the, the operation that has created this is part of doing is is taking on these kinds of issues and using cinema to or films and especially in in a sort of a big way um you know uh, help garner these ideas out into the public consciousness and I, I i you know like i would say that that has got a a fairly strong philanthropic heart they you know the particip- you know some of the films from participant media uh include uh, let me pull some up here uh waiting for superman the film about uh education in america mm-hmm. um Again, an inconvenient truth. This, the Cove about dolphin, uh, dolphin hunting. Um, you know, middle of nowhere by Ava, Ava Duvani. They've produced Lincoln by with Spielberg. Sure, um, and so, listen, you know, I think that's a very, um, a very responsible use of a fraction of their billions. I think uh, that's very lovely. There, I, it, it, this isn't a thing that I'm. I'm. Uh, I, I think that's great. Billionaires can do really good things. Right. Uh, but. I also believe that the actual concept of a billionaire hurts literally society as a whole. So it it's uh you don't get to be a billionaire by being a uh net positive good person. <laughs> hmm. Again, personal I, I, belief. Know, I, I Hashtag think the case of Jeffrey personal Skull belief might be uh, you know, like we we could argue that. The, so the thing. Okay, is, let me actually let me rewind then. Yeah. Let's say for the sake of the argument, because I don't know this man, I haven't done the research on it, so I don't want to besmirch him or his name or the works he's done. He's obviously produced a lot of stuff that is very helpful. Yeah. Um, maybe he's one of the outliers. Sure. Right. I'm saying overall, the concept of the billionaire is bad for the majority of people on the planet. Uh. I, yeah, that is a I, sort of a deep-seated I, belief of mine. Yeah, I, I can, I can, I can certainly understand the sentiment there. Uh, I, I would. I'm perhaps... not trying to besmirch the 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 various good works that a billionaire could possibly do, but I also do believe it's real fucking difficult to become a billionaire in a completely moral space. Well, I think the the reason I was interested in that topic was because of the way in which the Sackler name, uh, despite having a kind of philanthropic aim and, and, and a real deep-seated love for art preservation, curation, and collection. Like a deep, you know, like but probably... I would... but, but, but is entirely erased away by their involvement in Purdue Pharmacy. And, and the film has a really interesting moment um, when the two descendants of the Sackler family are uh, have to sit through a remote hearing where they have to listen to victims of the opioid crisis yeah. um, go through it. And they have to sit through the entire thing. And I think that's a really remarkable moment that this documentary conjures up, which is that, um, again, just coming from that point of view of the personal and the political, you know, like what is the personal, what is the political, how does one affect the other? And I, and I think what I have always uh, maintained or suggested, especially in our conversations about art, separating art from the artist and what have you, is that there is 
possible to have a separation from which. However, the two things do affect each other. And I think what's really interesting here is the way in which there's a complete erasure. And, uh, and I'm not saying right or wrong. I, in fact, I, I think it's kind of right that the Sackler name is removed from the from museums. That it's mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that um, and, and kind of cheekily, they still hold on to the art. Um, you know, like the, yeah. the like the Museum of, of Modern Art still has Sackler uh, donated uh, items in there. It's their almost collection. like. Uh, that family didn't build all those monuments, those Egyptian monuments in in the Met. That's crazy, right? Um, but but it's it, it's it's interesting in 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 you know I guess it is the ultimate David and Goliath story here. We've got a photographer on one side whose work is um, uh, evocative of the most intimate and personal, and she is not someone who shied away from from you know showing herself and discussing herself within her work. Mm-hmm. Who uses that as as a kind of battle cry or battle tool um, in terms of how to affect change around her? And then you, on the other side, you've got this monolithic or almost monolithic family that have used the amount of wealth that they've amassed from their from their um, capitalistic endeavors to try and preserve art. And in one way, you know, one props in the case of Nan Golding. Her personal beliefs prop up her political beliefs um, because they are consistent with one another. In the other way, the personal and the political contradict each other in terms of the Sacklers, and it creates this erasure that eventually happens, which is why the Purdue family, you know, the Purdue Pharma is considered, you know, even amongst people who work in the pharmaceutical industry to be kind of a um, persona non grata now. And I think I, I just I think that's a uh, I, I don't know if the film kind of like conjures that up you know maybe it's not really that interested in it but i found that i found like thinking about that dichotomy as i was watching the film between these two people the sackler and the goldens really fascinating so Um, there's an interesting thing because we and we won't get too much into art versus artist here because we have a whole episode on that you can go listen to it um but we can continue to evolve that conversation eventually i think whether I, i think the conversation of if art can be separated from an artist is a interesting and vast one that many people can have different opinions on uh and it's that's great. I think separating per- the personal from political is a much more difficult, and I might even believe, uh, you know, we don't have enough time to debate this, a nigh impossible thing. Because politics right. is the act of people interacting. And right. the way people act is based purely on personal things. So politics and personal are very, very tied together for me. And, uh, you know... Uh, the way that uh, the Sacklers, yeah, they sure did collect a bunch of other people's artwork and bought it and kept it in places and then put it other places. But and maybe maybe there is a deep seated love for uh, protecting these things. Maybe also that could be uh, a narrative about just wanting to collect the most stuff because they're rich and need a philanthropic way to maneuver money around. Could be one, the other, both, neither. But still, when you get to that level, due to the fact I don't believe you can actually get there in a purely moral way, any and all sort of sympathy for an erasure of of, of uh, sort of ancillary uh, preservation that they did, for me personally kind of doesn't really weigh into it. These people are monsters that that at the very least allowed their company to prey on the weak and the addicted and did nothing about it. And only people like Nan and and many other sort of smaller fish 
were able to, or, or, or like we're trying to get this into the public, into the public eye to sort of like kind of show it a little bit more. And again, chicken to the egg thing, lots of different stuff was happening. Purdue is now a pariah. That's great. Purdue was also the, n not the Sacklers. <laughs> like the Purdue went bankrupt. The Sacklers were, and as this film sort of talks about, you know, was funneling money away from Purdue for years before then. The cost of the epidemic, I think, uh, you know, again, spoiling for the numbers, but this movie is way more than the numbers it uh, you know, shows you. I think it was something like they were fined $6 billion, mm -hmm. uh, you know, but like it really cost like $1 trillion based on all of the fucking terrible nonsense that like happened about it. Oh, and the only reason that they paid the $6 billion was to, in like an unprecedented uh, legal hearing, was to make sure that there could never be any prosecution for generations for their family. Right. You, they bought that for $6 billion with blood money. And it's right. and it's crazy. So uh, again, it's and it's funny the way I'm talking about this. It mm -hmm. does make the the sort of the that side of the documentary. Uh, I I could see if you haven't seen this film, feel hopeless. Mm -hmm. But I do then swing back the pendulum to the names being removed, specifically from the start and the end. And this movie does a very good job connecting all of its dots. The start to the end uh, of the movie, uh, specifically with the uh, the exhibit of the Met, right and. It's a really interesting dichotomy between the erasure of, like, the story that her parents wanted her to believe about her sister's death, versus later in life coming to terms with it, getting the the doctor's notes and the and the and the orphanage notes and finding out what truly happened to her sister from the words of people that were not her her family. Right. It's this it's this uh, dissemination of information to people. That are supposed like you're supposed to believe this thing. Don't look over here. But now you look over here and you can see kind of the truth of what is going on. And I think the erasure, like the, the, the truth, is the only thing that got you know those names taken down. Right, uh, and, and I think um, Vin, the film, kind of does something really interesting, which is that um, if we come, if we circle back to the idea of the personal within Nan Golding's work mm. and 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 the way in which the film kind of circles around the story of her sister's suicide, um, again, haunting, they kind of um, almost recreate the, I think Golden herself kind of recreated the situation in which her sister committed suicide. Um, the, uh, what the notes suggest is that her parents were not equipped to have children and may have had some monstrous effect in the deterioration of their daughter's mind. Mm -hmm. And and in fact, one of the doctors makes this note that he or he or she believes that the mother should be placed in, in um, psychiatric care, not the daughter, mm. or just as much as the daughter. And... So that's this kind of monstrous revelation that's kind of led to at the end. But then it's like immediately, almost immediately counterpunched with Nan Golden watching her family, you know, her mother and father dance and kind of watching them with a kind of loving appreciation that, hey, my parents are not perfect. These aren't perfect people, but these are my parents. Mm -hmm. and, and they can still share in the tragedy of her sister. And I think that is kind of this um, thing, which is... Which is, I, I, I'm not advocating that we should forgive the Sacklers or anything like that, by the way. Good. Um, <laughs> but I think what is interesting is that I believe that all people have a depth of humanity within them. And when I think about the, the level, you know, like, 
of all the things Arthur Sackler could be doing with his money, art preservation was the thing that he decided to do. And I think that is fascinating and interesting. That's a fascinating and interesting thing to it's, think about within the context of what was important to this person. But art collection at that level is like one of the top ways to basically move money around. Like it, it there, there are intrinsic ways where it's not just at that level. It's not just about the love and preservation of art. It's just not like you can have lower tier members of that community a thousand percent where I, that's their passion. But I think it, you're, I think you're responding to like the the level of wealth that this person attained in order to do this, right? I'm responding to that is an activity that the people of that level of wealth often engage in to move money around in what is ex socially acceptable ways. So Do you, can I, can I ask you a question? Because, because this is kind of strikes the heart of what I'm sure. What I think I'm trying to get at here yeah. is without knowing anything about the man himself or anything about it. And again, I'm not advocating for uh, a renunciation of the, the evil deeds he did, but do you think that there is a possibility that he could have been interested in art history just by the by? Uh, like, sure, like but interest, interest, in and moral standing of what you're doing with your money, uh, don't like just because you're interested in it doesn't mean what you're doing is morally correct. Do you, do you think it's possible he could be passionate about it? Sure. Do you? I, I know a lot of pa people that are passionate about a lot of damaging shit, or, or the way that they go about it could be considered damaging. Right. Like there, it, it's there's for it's, you. There's no. There's no. Um, at that financial no level. At yeah. that financial level. The chances are so slim that in my mind, for me being outside of that circle, then no. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. Okay. So, because I think for me, the thing I'm interested in is thinking about the humanity of the people at the center of the story and thinking about the humanity of this person who, uh, and again, not redemption, you know, not a redemption story, but I think what the film is getting at is that, well, or, or maybe what I have a personal belief about is that everybody has a shred of humanity within them and it has, and their passions belie that humanity. And and I think the thing that I think is interesting is to think about the comparison between Nan Golding as a person who's passionate about photography and her work and and how it was a reflection on her life and uh, Arthur Sackler. I think that that to me that was an interesting thing that this film raised. And and what I was what I was fascinated about was on the one hand how the personal and the political for Nan Golding was a support mechanism which allowed her belief structures to flourish and you know and rightly so. And on this side, on the Sackler side, it it created this entire erasure because of the the monstrous effects of what they had been involved in as a family to his passions. And I think to me that is an interesting dichotomy to think about, as opposed to you know like I you know that th that's just where I come come at it. Um, and, I mean, and I, I, as far as as far as interesting plot threads, I a thousand percent see where you are coming from, from like the story of life. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the the for again, for me personally, the the actual like toll on society is too fucking sad to like have me be excited about that. And, and it's funny, it's interesting. I, I always love and this isn't you saying this. This is like I've done this, too, because it's a it's an easy shorthand. The term humanity. Right. Like talking about someone's humanity is right. often couched in like, oh, the goodness of people, right? Yeah. Like the, the what you know, what they're you know, the good things, the lighter parts, the passions, etc. I actually don't really. <laughs> this is getting dark. I don't actually like believe humanity that everyone is humanity. Everyone's a human being. Right. I don't intrinsically believe that means that is necessarily like uh, the classical concept of goodness. Humanity is very selfish. Humanity is also very loving. Humanity is cruel. Humanity is kind. 
Um, and so like I a thousand, I, I believe, and this is why I'm saying this. I believe I called him a monster. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he is a human being that did monstrous thing or his family and company was allowed to do monstrous things. That right. does not mean he himself was not a human, but also humans can be terrible. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, and, and, again, and, and I think the film has an int- like, again, yes. to, to that end with Nan Golding's mother in particular, whom mm-hmm. the 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 actual psychological evaluations suggest may have been di- either directly responsible or or not. Sorry, not directly responsible. That's an irresponsible thing to say. Yeah. But but influence the way in which her family turned out. Um, based but, on based on assault herself, I believe, is how, ba- how it was hinted on, at. Yeah, based on assault herself. And um but Golding doesn't see it that way, or at least her camera points to that to that couple in a way that that demonstrates that there is a humanity to these people that even though she you know has unanswered questions about what their lives have you know have have wrought, mm-hmm. um, that there is a humanity to these people, and I think that's what's beautiful, and that's what's interesting about the way in which. Um, Golding's personal and politicals belie each other, which is that I think she sees a humanity in people. Um, I don't think she, I, I. I do think. Oh, she, she a thousand percent does. You can uh, see it in her humanitarian work with addicts. Like yeah, a thousand and I don't. And I, I. I don't think that means that she thinks the sacklers should be let off the hook. She thinks that they should be accountable. But I think, again, it's a for me personally, it's a remarkable moment to watch that that cup uh, the the the, the sackler children having to listen to this to, to these stories and just consider. Like, how are they reading these stories? Is it getting through to them? Do they care? Do they not care? Do they feel Do they feel um, angry that they're having to sit through this? Do they feel upset that they're hearing the weight, the toll of the things that they have done? And I think that's the power of the documentary itself is to, like, show us that and to not not give us uh, 100% like these people are monsters and we should, you know, completely forget about them, but just talk about this story in an interesting way. And for me, I think that humanity is interesting. And I, I like... Um, I like stories that like delve into the, you know, like into the humanity of people that we might consider monsters. I mean, you know, like I'm just pulling in a film at the top of my head, There Will Be Blood is about a monstrous human sure. being. But is there a humanity to that, to that monstrous human I being? I find, here's, here's where I think uh, maybe you and I differ on this. I find uh, fiction, stories that explore that, 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 that element in fiction, Mm-hmm. more rewarding because there is not actual true pain tied to it. Like it, it clouds it for me. It let it lets me it does it doesn't um it doesn't allow me the uh the the leeway of intellectual exercise and finding it interesting. Right. I'm angry at the Sacklers. And 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 it's funny. I I too wonder. I think I, I will I will mirror your comment. I think that moment is incredibly powerful in this film. I think it's it's a wonderful way to. Um, it, it, and here's here's the weird, interesting part. Hmm. I don't think, based on the level of privilege, and this is again me assuming, hmm. uh, and and wealth that they have. I guarantee you, they were uncomfortable in that moment, and I get, and they might have actually been very sad, and maybe it moved some needles somewhere. But I don't. That that was two hours out of their otherwise, um, at least financially stable lives. And uh, I think what this film does that I think is very, very effective and powerful is it takes those two uncomfortable hours, trims them down, of course, um, 
but now puts them out for the world to see. And I think, uh, again, the quote I used at the beginning, the wrong things are kept secret and it destroys people. Seeing the face of the people that are in control of, of this amount of societal damage is important. Hmm. Because we need to remember that while corporations are a bunch of different people under a bunch of different bureaucracies, there are few at the top that act humans with humanity that actually make decisions. And the more they get removed, the less likely they are to act with the kinder parts of humanity at the core of what they are doing as opposed to profit-driven. So it was a really effective moment. And it, you know what you know what it got me to, Sheer? It was the throughout the entirety of Nan's work and like the history of her that we go through, it is all about the personal. It's mm -hmm. all about like like people that she is intimately involved with and in getting inside of their personal lives. That's, that was what she did. That's her photography. Hmm. By the end of the movie, in a weird way, because we've been set up along the same line in this movie, along the same track, and in her mind, I'm sure this is exactly the same, the Sacklers are a part of her life. Yeah, part of her narrative, yeah. Not even her narrative, like her actual like personal life. Because of the active, because of the way that the uh, opioid epidemic has affected her personally, uh, the way that society deals with those sort of things, and then finding sort of the sources of where that can come from in this particular case, and to have her be able to, in a work surrounding her, and I know this is honestly the work, uh, you know, uh, as well at, from the director uh, of Laura uh, Putrias and her, the entire team that sort of did this, but to have the faces, the intimate faces of the people that did so much damage in and around her life and for the rest of us on the same level of all the other person with the only access that they could get, I'm sure on the same access and level and sort of playing field of her photography is just like a really moving and, and effective way to show that uh, from the many different, uh, I guess, uh, statuses of one's life and story. Like I just, I thought it was great. There's a beautiful uh, line that I think that not one of the members of pain uh, says, but another, I believe it's a mother who's in that hearing, in that uh, hearing with the Sacklers, uh, where she says, uh, I don't know you, but I feel like I, uh, we share a common history in the opi in, in, opi uh, in Oxycontin and the opioids mm -hmm. because, because of things that you've done, my family, you know, like I lost my son. Um, and I think that's a, you know, uh, perhaps it would have happened if it had not been for Zoom, but it was an interesting thing because the movie kind of spans the pandemic as well, that it like yeah. becomes this sort of uh, interesting uh, feat of technology as well. And, you know, the changing face of technology as, in, as far as Nan Golding's works go. Um, I I think the movie really, you know, and, and Golding's work herself, the amazing thing when you look at a Golding photograph, like there's this photograph that I remember I was looking at when uh, I was looking for that, that Jeff Buckley project. And it was this photograph of a, I think it's called The Hug. And it's a photograph of the back of a woman and then this like really muscular, strong arm holding her. Yep. And there are all these like details in her photographs, which you just cannot find anywhere else. And I think that's what attracted people to her work, which was that, you know, I think one of the gallery owners said something along the lines of, um, I just never seen photographs like this, which were high art, but also commonplace and intimate. Um, 
And there's so much detail to be looked at and to sort of think about. And, and it kind of, a single image that she creates kind of like opens up this world. And, you know, to me in this film, seeing just the single face of one of the Sacklers listening to the story and trying to figure out what is going on there, mm-hmm. um, for me, was like a, just a fascinating exercise. I will say, um, yeah, the fact that it didn't win Best Documentary, you know, like whatever. Sure. Um, there is, I, I think um, it's naive to think that, that documentary filmmaking isn't an act of narrative, fi- like, an act of writing in the same vein as narrative fictionalization. Like, it, it, it requires both the, um, the pull material and the construction of, of narrative sure. uh, yep, yep, in yep. any way. And the one thing I wanted to go on before we go out is that it was really, I guess in my mind, somewhat pointed, um, or at least I thought it was pointed, it'd be interesting, you know, what people thought about this, that Navalny won. And there were two films really in the best documentary feature um, category that were very profoundly uh, about the Russian invasion of Ukraine, mm. uh, both Navalny and A House Made of Splinters, which is about a Ukrainian orphanage. Um, uh, and the fact that Navalny won, um, you know, I, I watched Navalny over the weekend, and it's really interesting. You know, th- there's a moment in the, in the Navalny documentary, which is pretty amazing uh, in terms of, like, uh, almost a true crime scenario. Mm. Uh, have you seen the Navalny no, doc? Or? No, not yet. Uh, so, you know, really putting it, putting it out there, it's, it's not too much of a spoiler. I think everyone knows this at this point, is that um, uh, Navalny was poisoned, in, I think, in early 2019, 2020. Um, and through the process of the documentary, they figure out who might have been responsible for the poisoning and then call that person <laughs> during the documentary. And that person explains what went wrong with the poisoning and, like, ha- explains in detail on the phone how they tried to poison him. And it's Navalny talking to that person. So Navalny is talking to the person who poisoned him, Holy or who's responsible shit. for poisoning him. Yeah, that's and like, big. And, and, like, you know, up until this point, uh, it has been, you know, like, the, it, the Russian government has, has decried that this has got nothing to do with anything. Um, but so it's, it's an amazing thing. And I think it was pointed, and as far as the, the sort of the, the soft power of what the Oscars represent, um, the fact that they were too sort of, like, fairly pointed, I guess, anti-Russian uh, or anti-Ukrainian invasion uh, movies was, you know, I think a notable fact. Sure. Um, I, I I think the film, All, uh, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, is really beautiful, really touching, uh, really great insight, and I think really structurally um, brought into the fray, uh, brought into the world by the mechanisms by which Nan Golding has actually told her stories all the way throughout her career, mm-hmm. which is through her, photogra- uh, through her photography, through almost like a series of slideshows. This is not even a Ken Burns kind of style slideshow <laughs> where we're zooming in and kind of like beautifully treating these photos. Literal it is just slides. like a still up on screen yep. and and Nan Golding like um, narrating it. So it's like you kind of have to do the work. Um, as an audience member, I think that's I, I think it really really works. It really sort of demonstrates a, a sort of um, faith in the audience. So I loved it, and I'm glad we got to talk about it. Yeah, uh, same. And I think uh, you know if you're if you're missing out on the Last of Us and you can't see any cordyceps this week, maybe you'd be interested in some Nan Golding photographs. Yeah, in the opioid crisis. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's totally. <laughs> similar? Totally similar. Uh, I, I don't know. Anyway, this has been the only podcast about all the beauty and the bloodshed. Shahir, when you are not 
bemoaning The Last of Us being finished on HBO, just wanting season two so badly. Where can folks find you? Can I can I tell you a secret? What? I didn't finish The Last of Us. Oh, no. I, I, no spoilers, I, everyone. I actually got a little bit bored of it, to be honest with you. Anyway, you can find me on my website, uh, pretending that I'm going to go back and play the PS4 game uh, uh, at com. That's S-H-A-H-I-R-D-A-U-D.com. I don't have a Twitch channel, but Matt does. Matt, can you tell us where anyone can find you on the internet? Sure. You can find me actually being really happy at how short The Last of Us was, because Shahir... I agree with you. It's a complicated emotional story, but it doesn't need to have 12 or plus episodes. I think they did it real dang well. Uh, you can hear me saying those sort of things over at my website, M-A-T-T-H-E-W-K-R-O-L.com, my life and works. Also, Skeletor, the number four, Pierizia on PSN or the other place, Instagram and Emperor MSK on Twitter. Also, please check out the good works we're doing over on Extra Credits right now on the tw- on the YouTube side of things. By the time this comes out, we will have released our Baba Yaga episode on Extra Mythology and uh, we'll be uh, closing out uh, John Brown. I believe John Brown 4 will be out on YouTube and 5, the final one, will be on Nebula by that point. And um, yeah, Twitch, we've been doing some good stuff. We've been um... playing The Last of Us. No, we're not playing The Last of Us, although I am really interested in the remake ability of Part 1. So if you do replay... Yeah, the last I think of I us. have the remastered version. It's not the same. So this is the this. Okay, listen. <laughs> this right. is how I'm going to end go. up. Let's get into it. Naughty Dog did a re-re-release okay. of Last of Us that they named it Last of Us Part One. Okay. And it's re it's the whole game redone on their Last of Us Part Two, like the updates of the engine. Uh, it's not okay. just the reskin or the 4K or whatever. It's yeah. an actual mechanical like like. It makes them feel like they're in the same you know right. space because they were released years apart. I'm very curious about it because that is a game, The Last of Us Part One, that I have bought twice at sixty dollars. <laughs> I refuse to do it again, even though I am really curious from an educational standpoint. I'm waiting for it to go on sale, basically, before right, yeah. I buy Part One for the PS5. I have a I have a weird thing which I've and it's maybe it's because the way I have games now, it's yeah. that I have a projector and the PlayStation. And I actually get nauseous or a really? headache when I play first person. Uh, you need third person. Not just first person, but even maybe even third person. I don't really? Know. Um, so I was playing like What Became of Edith Finch the other night, mm-hmm. and I got nauseous <laughs> like playing it, and I was like, I'm really liking this game, but I cannot go on. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, I don't know how I'll do with The Last of Us. Uh, I, I played, I, I remember like years ago, I played through the first you know, like 40 minutes of the game. Sure. Got stuck on some clickers and, and never picked it up again. Can I make a I, suggestion if you do yeah. do it again? Yeah. Just play it on easy. I'm, I'm serious. Sure. Like, yeah, c- yeah. because I'm, the narrative I'm, and the experience, like, it's funny because the show is the narrative, right? Right, yeah. But there's, it's a very simple narrative. Yeah. They do it artfully in the show, but there's something really powerful to you moving through that narrative in an interactive way. Yeah. Even, I'm, like, I find, I maybe this is old man gamer talking, mm-hmm. but, like, because I just don't have time. I've yeah. been playing most big budget narrative games on easy these days. I right. love it. Well, it's a, I, I, I'm I'm a big uh, believer in experiential narrative. Yeah, and 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 the way in which experiential narrative is entirely different to um, I wouldn't say passive narrative in the way sure. that we do in cinema, but you know it's just a different experience by being able to like you know I, we've talked about my favorite experience in Half Life Two yep. with the um, with the gravity gun as like as an and as a perfect example of experiential narrative. It's funny on extra credits, and this is going to be like months from now because we're a little bit ahead on scripts, but uh, there's a really good, uh, we're doing a really interesting look at why video games don't use the unreliable narrator a lot. Because right. it's real weird and hard. There's different things. There's different uh, yeah, ways it can, can of, implement. I can think of one right now. What is it? Uh, Bioshock. 
It's not though, because it's not, it's, 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 uh, it's like akin to it. Again, I have the script in front of me. It's so yeah. interesting when you dive deep because it's yeah. actually like Andrew Ryan is not. It's, it's a the, difficult thing to do in the construct of a game, which requires. Which is you, when yeah. you are the person that are, that is sort of like experiencing the thing to, you can have what you do's meaning change but yeah. your actions are not unreliable. There's a couple, like, Spec Ops The Line does, anyway, we're getting way off topic. Regardless, next week, Shahir, O-M-F-G. What, what, what comes out next week? Dungeons and Dragons, motherfucker. I've never, yeah, maybe we should do that because I've never played Dungeons and Dragons. I'm gonna get us, I'm gonna try to get us a good D&D space guest. Maybe I'll find it at PAX. Maybe I've already done it by the time you're listening to this. <laughs> Um, uh, yeah, I believe that's next week. Um, you're not interested in Shazam 2 even, uh, did you see it? No, I did not. Um, yeah. it's it weird. Really, it's really, it, it is really fascinating to watch that I think we are seeing the decline of the superhero genre, um, right now in kind of real time. Like, I think, I think there is a waning interest. Uh, at least that's my feeling on the street. It's, you know why <laughs> there is? It's not interesting. Right, yeah. There's I think a, there are plenty of superhero stories and comic book uh, arcs and things that are very interesting. The yeah. way we are being presented them in cinema right now is boring. If and, you go back to uh, genre studies, I think there is this, th this happens in a lot of genres, and then what will happen, hopefully, is there's a, a, a renaissance, uh, yeah. which which solidifies why we were passionate about it. We saw it with like um, Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven. Yeah, but um, I don't think you can have a renaissance until it goes away for a while. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's exactly what happened there. And, and like, for example, today it was announced that the Daniels are di uh, directing a Star Wars TV show. And, I, like, collectively in my film circles, we're all like, uh, you know, like, like what excited about us about these two guys was that we're going to see things that we wouldn't see in other franchises. You know, we would see interesting books that came unique. We would see the farting corpse movie. I don't know yeah. if we're going to see the farting corpse movie in Star Wars. Here's the thing. <laughs> if Andor didn't exist, mm. I would be a thousand percent against the Daniels doing that. Right. Because Andor exists, I'm only 95 percent against the Daniels doing that. I'm also like. Get the bag, man. You know, like, oh, yeah, oh, like, also, 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 get yes. the bag. Yes. <laughs> get that bag. Uh, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> we've been, uh, this is an episode of Tangents. Yeah. Um, next week, uh, we'll be rolling some fucking D20s, I think. Uh, and we'll be. Don't know what that means. Yeah. Well, Don't you're know gonna. What that means. You're gonna. <laughs> uh, roll, roll a wisdom check, Shahir. Uh, the energy equals mass times the speed of light squared. <laughs> and you're petrified. We'll talk <laughs> to you next week. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.